Hello and welcome to the Orton Family Foundation's Heart and Soul Talks conference call series when we focus on key tools and solutions aimed at building better communities through empowering residents to plan their future based on what matters most to them. I'm Fran Stoddard and want to welcome all of you to this call. So Community Heart and Soul had its genesis in one planning commissioner's frustration with business as usual planning. The Orton Family Foundation founder, Lyman Orton, saw flaws in a development review system that left decisions that affected the entire community in the hands of a very few. Today we'll hear about how Community Heart and Soul shifts the paradigm by starting with deep community engagement that results in clear priorities based on what matters most to all the residents and how Heart and Soul can build capacity of government and citizens to work together. Our panel today is led by Elise Montez-Griego, Director of Programs at the Orton Family Foundation. Hi Elise, are you there? I'm here, coming on. Okay, <laughs> terrific. And she is joined by Jane LaFleur, former planner and current executive director of the Friends of Midcoast, Maine. Hi, Jane. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by Rick um, Murabi. Is that how you pronounce your name, Rick? Murabi. Yeah, Murabi. He is the planning manager in Golden, Colorado. Welcome, Rick. Great. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. All right, great. So um, now just a few logistics from me, and then we'll get right uh, back to our speakers. We have over 300 folks registered today, so we'll be putting um, – we have put everybody on mute to keep the audio as clean as possible. In your email is a link to our Google Doc. It's a shared online document for note-taking and questions, so you can interact with us there. You can open that um, in your browser to follow along as Orton's Caitlin Davison takes notes on our speakers' presentations and their answers. Know that those notes will be proofed at the end of the call. So we don't need your pro proofing, but we do encourage you to add your own comments, resources, or questions to the document at any time. However, these calls have become very popular, and since the Google Doc can only handle 50 people or editors as, as active document editors at a time, if you're not adding a question or a resource to the document, uh, please close out and reopen the document in the read-only mode. If you're having any trouble with the Google Docs during the call, click on the refresh icon, and, and that should uh, reboot it. It's a good idea to skim through the questions that are already there uh, to avoid redundancy. If you have a question during the call, please enter it on the document. One of the things that's great about this document is the wisdom of this terrific crowd that we have listening. So let's make sure that everybody has a chance to add their thoughts and resources. If you can't get into the document during this call, know that we will leave the document up after the call for your continued input and reference. In a few days, we'll also send a link around to participants uh, with all the call notes and the podcast. So on to our guests. Elise Montez-Griego is Orton's Director of Programs. Nationally recognized in the field, Elise is a member of the Placemaking Leadership Council and is on a community equity advisory board known as PLACES. Elise is a town, was a town planner for nearly a decade and assisted the U.S. Air Force in comprehensive planning efforts. Since joining Orton, she has served as a project manager guiding several towns in community heart and soul and has been key in the development of the method and in the content and creation of the heart and soul field guide. Welcome, Elise. So why don't you set us up a little bit for the rest of this call? 
Thanks, Fran. And I guess I, just to start, I, it's really an honor to be on this call with all of the listeners. I looked at the map, and there's there's a lot of people from all over the U.S. and even Canada, and so it's a real honor to be on the call. And so I guess to riff on what Fran um, just left you with in terms of my background as a past town planner, I did planning for both small and big cities, and I think in general some of the most pressing issues that my department faced really stemmed from, in the work itself, the speed by which we reviewed development proposals and that those development proposals generally were connected to revenue-generating businesses. Um, and then really the same five people, if we were lucky. You know, we call it the same ten people, but in my case it was typically five, um, either coming out in support or opposition of proposals. And we rarely had broader community comment on applications, and whether that was by phone or, you know, showing up at hearings or even written comment being sent in, we just really didn't get any feedback from the community. And um, we were really, as town staff, we played the role as the experts of what needed to happen in our town, and I think in part because no one ever came to say otherwise, and so we naturally just kept evolving in that role. Um, but as a, as a planner and somebody with maybe a different sort of ethic in that, I was never really comfortable with being the expert on what the community needed and what needed to happen. Um, and trying to review development proposals and make recommendations on them, knowing that they weren't really going to be supported by residents. Um, I was constantly pushing for more engagement from the community and, and sometimes even squeezing it in because city council or planning commission didn't support public participation all that much or they didn't really want a lot of people to show up at public hearings because that's usually when people came angry um, and in opposition. So I guess to set us up for the call today, I have a real quick story about my past planning work and, and I guess kind of how it connects with the Orton Family Foundation's community heart and soul planning methodology. So I used to do, um, in addition to development review and everything else, I did a lot of special projects and a lot of that was um, municipal code writing. And so even though I wasn't trained how to do it, I always felt like I needed to form teams of people from the community to help me do the work or really to actually get their insights to make my job easier. Um, and so in one project, I'll just kind of highlight here, was with rewriting a lighting code. And I just thought, we got to get in the field. we got to get people seeing what it looks like at night and what does it feel like. So I managed to arrange for two buses um, to be driven, with filled with people, including residents and business owners and decision makers, like planning commission and city council members. It also included like lighting engineers and the developers, um, a whole host of folks. And we went on a nighttime tour, and I formed groups of people of about five people each, and I made sure each of those groups were equipped with light meters and surveys. And the surveys were a place for us to start our, our talking uh, among a group of people that we felt like sometimes we could be at odds with. And so together, they we all sort of surveyed each commercial site that we went to and measured the lighting that we were experiencing. So we took a survey, noting what it looked like, but importantly, what it felt like. So before that particular tour, residents and developers were essentially at odds with each other, often arguing and it coming up to me as a planner to try to make a decision about what was too bright or not bright enough. Um, and at the end of the tour, people were talking about foot candles, they were, you know, we like 10 over 100 foot candles. They were talking about glare, they were talking about night blindness and more. 
And so ultimately, what we discovered is there was a lot more agreement than expected, but it gave people the tools by which to have those conversations. Um, and so I guess I'll bring it back. How does this relate to community heart and soul? And I guess I would say, imagine if you knew what your community wanted the future of the town to really look like or feel like. And what if your special projects or your development review could be aligned with, with moving the community toward a future together, really? And so the story that I shared, um, what I didn't know going into rewriting the lighting code is whether that particular project related to the town's sense of common cause or its heart and soul. I mean, at that rate, at that time, I didn't even know what heart and soul was. It wasn't developed yet. But had it been, it certainly would have been easier to rally people um, around that and get them engaged if I could have said, hey, you know, you've all said that you appreciate and value our local economy, our small town feel, or even our sense of family friendliness. As a planner, one of the things that I could do to take action on that is to address our night lighting. Um, and so knowing the town's common cause, it would have had a better sense of what projects to focus on and where to spend our resources. And so the outcome of that project that I just described had a lot of similar outcomes that happen in Heart and Soul. And so I'll just kind of map some of that out, I guess, as I'm thinking and talking at the same time here. But with Heart and Soul, you learn ways to bring people together um, in ways that are appropriate and unique to your town. So it's not like a cookie-cutter approach. You need to work with your community and figure out what what makes sense to them um, for engagement purposes. You'll come to agreements, and by agreements, I don't mean consensus. Um, we know that that really doesn't quite ever happen, but I mean informed consent. When people have the information to be okay with being okay um, and not having you know everything 100% their way, that's a really important agreement place to get to. And you'll also garner support by really more people being, during the process, um, being part of it. And so like at the end of that lighting code update that I did with our city council, not only did we get unanimous support from council, but we had an audience that was like 30 people versus the same five that we always had. And they were there to speak in support of the project, which I, I never had. It was only people that made time to come in opposition. Um, so working with the community really made a difference. And with heart and soul, because residents are so involved with what is being developed, you'll build trust with people. And really, um, because you're relying on your community to help with this work, you don't have an outside expert that comes and does it for you and gives you a report. The community is actually working on that together. And when you do that, you'll discover new leaders and passions um, and more people that will, will be willing to help take action. So there's more sense of ownership um, in what gets developed. And so I guess Heart and Soul is really a barn-raising approach to community planning and then ultimately provides planners the tools to become community builders. The process begins with um, building a robust, what we call a demographically representative team or a team of people that actually mirror what your demographics are in the community. And that team gathers input via storytelling, and storytelling is, is, such, is used in such a broad way. Um, so there's a lot of different forms of stories. And the stories have data, Those, that data is used for decisions and actions, but the stories also begin to bind your community and close divides and really build trust and sense of ownership together as a collective. And so then instead of you or a small team of people deciding what needs to happen, 
the whole community is involved again with deciding and prioritizing and, and importantly taking action. And so the town, um, the town's heart and soul, when you get to that point of articulating with the whole broader community, what is your heart and soul, it isn't just the obligation of the town government to champion that. Um, and because relationships are developed and connections are made with the people in the community, more people will feel a sense of connection to their common cause and really how they'll know how to engage um, to be able to take action too. So I guess finally from the field as a path planner, I knew that the model, before we started building it, um, I knew that the model would need to account for more residents being part of creating a town's vision, um, but uh, as, far, as also feeling connected um, to that vision so that they could take action. Um, I knew decision makers needed a way to build connections with residents and business owners and to be confident that their decisions were what the whole community wanted. So while I helped develop the model, along with 12 of our small or rural partner towns, it's amazing people like Jane and Rick on the call today that have firsthand experience with applying it in the field and really using it in their planning work today. Okay. Thank you so much, Elise. Sure. Setting that up. Are, are you? Did I interrupt, or was, or are you, are you finished for now? I'm all done. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Um, so now on to our our folks that are um, on, on the ground right now. Our next guest is Jane Lafleur. She's the executive director of the Friends of Mid Coast Maine. Jane served as a project coordinator for Amerskata Heart and Soul, and has provided technical assistance to other project towns, including Gardner, Maine. Jane recently established the Community Institute, a series of workshops to educate community members about planning and development issues. Earlier this year, Jane was recognized by the Maine Association of Planners and very recently, subsequently, the Northern New England chapter of the American Planning Association with the Professional Planner of the Year Award. Congratulations, Jane, and oh, welcome. It's you. great to have you on the call. Uh, thanks so much. So tell us about your experience. Okay, um, well, thanks for having me. Um, what I would like to just talk about is how a community that goes through a heart and soul process might do things differently. Like, what difference does it make if you hold a heart and soul process or conduct a heart and soul process versus a, a conventional planning process? In Dermascata, um, we identified the commonly held community values. Like any other community embarking on a heart and soul process, Community members and a committee gathered stories from fellow community members at potluck dinners, around kitchen tables, at community festivals and events. And from all of these stories, um, the town developed six shared values. And they were everything from uh, we value living locally to um, being able to afford to live and shop in our town to we value culture and nature in close proximity where we might see a seal or a moose but we also have restaurants and art galleries and a library all, all within walking distance. So they identified from the stories what the values were and then incorporated those values or what matters most to the community into a vision. Many planners um, develop a vision in their comprehensive planning process, but it, it became pretty clear that that vision was something that everybody in the community could identify because, identify with and agree with. Um, the town embarked on a four-day community charrette. A charrette is an extensive 
four-day planning process with outside experts in planning, design, transportation, housing, commercial development, bikeability, walkability, all of those things that planners and community members care about. And the, um, the townspeople studied three parts of town, and a level of community agreement was reached on how those parts of town should grow and, and change. And then they tied the recommendations that came through that planning process to the community's values. Um, the next step was the town's leaders adopted the values for future planning efforts. They, uh, the selectmen adopted a, an official resolution and recommended that the values be included in the comprehensive plan update and, and quote unquote, all future co community planning efforts and activities. And that was huge. Um, we all care about funding because there's always great ideas, but we'll, how do we pay for them? Because of the extensive public input that was obtained over these 18 months, um, the town was able to receive funding for bicycle and pedestrian um, work, for sidewalk construction, for shore and harbor planning work, for sea level rise studies, and recently for EPA technical assistance for revitalizing village and town centers. So all of that planning work was specifically um, connected to not only additional planning funds, but construction funds for sidewalks. One of the outstanding um, uh, results of this kind of process is that a, there is a community expectation for higher level community involvement. Residents learned a new way of doing business. Public hearings were not the only way to listen to the community. There was a new organization that was started called the Twin Villages Alliance, and that helped um, the select board and the downtown business owners communicate better. The town manager adopted a list, the listserv and sends out weekly newsletters to community members. And now the town uses keypad polling at, at town meetings to better capture the community's votes, even though they still encourage public discussion, but the anonymity of the voter is um, preserved during the vote. And then finally, uh, in my work in, with Gardner, who also went through a heart and soul process, um, I helped dissect hundreds of recommendations that came from community members and helped them analyze the impact and feasibility of these recommendations. Um, and these were all tied back to the city's values. For example, community members noted that the Riverfront Park could use additional picnic tables and the local Rotary Club helped to fund them and build them and install them. So everything was um, tied back to what people care most about and it turned into um, action planning in addition to um, just policy planning. It, it turned into action. So I'll stop there, but um, there is a big difference between a traditional planning process and a heart and soul planning process. Heart and soul uses creative ways to engage the public, identifies missing voices, and incorporates them, and then ties action to things that matter most in the community. Great. Thank you so much, Jane. And, and for all your fantastic work. Um, so we're finally, we're pleased to welcome Rick Mirby. Rick is a planning manager in Golden, Colorado. Rick was involved early on in Golden's heart and soul work and the development of Golden Vision 2030. He continues to work on Im implementation of the plan and incorporating Golden's values into community actions and decisions. And I just want to add before, uh, Rick, I turn it over to you, that you'll notice that um, these folks are, are, are really condensing and they're, they're giving some experience in it very quickly so we can get to your questions also. So we also thank them for that. They're, 
their information is is so rich. Um, so we we honor them for just taking you know a short amount of time to introduce what what they've done and how they've used Heart and Soul. Go ahead, Rick. Thanks, Fran. Thanks to everyone for having me here today. It's it's a pleasure. Uh, I just wanted to start by uh, by talking about Golden's process. Um, we we had a process that took about two years of outreach. That's how we we addressed the uh, the heart and soul values. We we had it. Our process was called Golden Vision 2030. Kind of that same values uh, vision theme that um, that Jane just talked about. So during this two year process, we had a lot of outreach. We had lots of neighborhood meetings, and I won't go into the details of those meetings. Um, because I want to get on to, uh, to what we've done with those values. Uh, so, so at the end of the two-year process, we were able to, to kind of refine everything that we heard and from, a, from lots of different uh, sources and boil it down to a set of values that we, we could discern from what the community told us. And we had a, we had a number of those, and I won't, I won't go into all of them, but they have sort of action words like accessible and walkable and active and connected and friendly and vibrant and those kinds of those kinds of words that, that gave us a sense of where what the community thought of themselves and, and where they wanted to go in the future and how to be compatible with those values. So, so after this process, we, we really didn't we, we wanted to make sure we used all of this information the best way we could. We didn't want it to be one of those sort of documents uh, that, that sits on the shelf and we, we refer to as you know as, as a great exercise. wasn't that wasn't that great? We all got together and and talked about our values. We wanted to make sure it got into our actual policy documents and, and filtered all the way down into zoning code and the site plan process. And so what we set about doing is starting at the at the broad level by uh, by sort of switching gears and, and, and updating our comprehensive plan. And uh, what we did was use the values as the structure of that comprehensive plan. It's sort of a, a, a different approach to a comp plan. So, so it has a lot of those same ele elements that a, a comp plan has, transportation and housing and all of those things, but it's, it's all sort of wrapped around the values that came out of, out of the Golden Vision process. And so that was really the first policy document that, that came out of this, and we used that also for our neighborhood plans that, that sort of fall underneath our comp plan, uh, focusing on specific areas of town and how those values apply to these specific neighborhood planning processes. And you'll, you'll find that in, in, uh, in, in all of our, our subsequent neighborhood plans since 2011 when this comp plan update happened. Um, another aspect of this that we wanted to make sure uh, got through to the other processes was, uh, was to, to make sure we, we had uh, this compatible with our capital investments planning. We wanted to make sure that uh, the roads and infrastructure, et cetera, related to these community values. And so we passed a complete streets ordinance, uh, re you know, requiring a, uh, a list of priority corridors through the community for complete street redesign, meaning accessible for walking and, and, uh, and bike lanes and, and uh, slowing down traffic where it makes sense to do so and, and creating safer, more complete streets um, in the community. And that, that really feeds into a lot of those, those same values that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so we had this priority of, of corridors, and we, we set about attaching money to those corridors and, and, and put, them, put the money actually in the budget. Uh, so this, this really helps actually get things done, helps things get implemented when you, when you have the values and you have a plan, and then you, you actually get the money uh, earmarked for those specific items. Uh, another aspect of this that, that we, we went for is, is to make sure that our zoning reflected the community values. And so uh, the first plan, neighborhood plan we did, we, we focused on an area of town, and we heard the same things about the values being, you know, we want it to be pedestrian friendly, we want, we want to have 
bicycle access and, and, and uh, feeling of safety and vibrancy uh, on the street in our commercial areas. And so what we did was look at the best way to accomplish that, and it turned out to be a form-based code approach for that for that area. So we we, we adopted a form-based zoning, which you know requires the buildings to be brought up to the street and wider sidewalks and pedestrian amenities and and, and you know trees and and trash cans etc. Uh, to to make for a pleasant and safe and safe environment. So that's another way the values got into our our zoning code. Um, and one of the things that we we also wanted to make sure we did was was get it down to the site plan level. So in planning, that's where we spend a lot of our time is is reviewing site plans. You know, applicants and developers will come in and they'll show us what they want to do, and 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 we'll we'll tell them what our code is. Um, what what we did was make sure that developers understood what our comprehensive plan said, and 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 you know by extension what our values are. So we created what we call a comprehensive plan compliance form. And so each developer applicant has to has to fill this out, which directly relates to the values. So we ask them all kinds of questions about how they're making their project more pedestrian friendly and uh, bicycle friendly and accessible, et cetera. Um, a whole whole host of whole, whole host of questions, and they have to provide this written narrative that describes what they're doing to advance these goals and values. And so this is a way we, uh, we we make sure that we stay on track even at the site level, the site planning level. And so, uh, you know, with, with all of these with all of these different uh, policy zoning and site planning um, value influences, we we feel like we're getting a lot closer to what the community wants to see and in how we proceed. And and uh, it really builds in, you know, that uh, that sense of uh doing doing what the community wishes us to do and so i think uh when when this is when this is going before uh you know, so for example going back to the site plan review process when this goes before planning commission or city council uh staff you know ha is comes armed with with these values and the staff report contains the values and how well or how not well the applicant is uh, addressing all of these values and can evaluate it accordingly. And so this this really gives staff as well as the appointed and elected officials um, a lot more to go on when making decisions. Great. And so this this is yeah this is this is how we're using it in Golden, and uh, it seems to be working pretty well for us so far. Fabulous, Rick. I have a quick question for you. Do you get much pushback from developers, or do they appreciate the kind of clarity that um, that, that these documents are are really offering them? I think they do. I think they, they, they realize it's some extra work than, than what they're normally used to, um, but I think it gives them a level of certainty as well, and I think that's what developers appreciate the most is just tell us what the rules are, tell us what you want, and, and we will try and get as close to that as possible. And, and I think when you, when you increase their certainty, that increases their appreciation for the process. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. We'll, we'll get on to our um, Q&A. Uh, right now, and uh, the the first one is from Colorado. Uh, Asked, how have you been able to communicate with the public regarding a development that may be perceived as a controversial uh, project? Um, Rick, do you want to follow up, or did I did I hear yeah. something else coming in there? Go go for it, and then and then we'll we'll also hear from uh, Jane and Elise. Go ahead. 
Sure, sure. I mean, I, I don't know that we have any anything you know revolutionary in how we communicate with the public. We we do the usual types of types of outreach. Uh, we we do try to be a little more uh, detailed in our in our letters that go out when when something is proposed, and have information on the website and 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 you know Twitter and Facebook and all the rest. Um, but I think what we've been doing more recently, um, especially in Golden, where uh, we're, we're mostly a built-out community, and we have lots of controversial projects because they're they're infill or redevelopment projects in, in in the heart of existing neighborhoods. And so what we we try to do whenever there's a situation like this is is in advance of of any public hearing process, have a neighborhood meeting, at least one, um, where they where they can come and have an informal discussion with the neighbors, and and they're able to show what their plans are on a conceptual level and, and you know, without having them fully, you know, fully baked and, 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 and sort of in this in this form that is perceived as irreversible. So they're able to come in and, and, and see on a conceptual level what those are and, and the neighbors and, and residents who are interested can react to that and have a conversation. And I think when you have everybody in a room and it's informal and they're not sitting in front of a, you know, a, a group of people making decisions, uh, then it, it's it's a lot more free flowing, and you you see a lot more compromises and a lot more uh, flexibility. And so that's that's helped us with our more controversial um, development proposals, and hopefully irons out a lot of things before they get to a hearing. Not not that there won't be any opposition, but I think it's uh, it can create some some better compromises and better results when the community has input early on. Terrific. Thank you, Rick. Um, uh, I'll go on to the next question unless Elise and Jane want to add to this whole um, how you deal with a controversial project. I would. This is Jane. I, I would yeah. just add quickly. Um, part of the point of Heart and Soul is that you work with people and listen to people up front in advance, so that you know what people care about. And often, even though it's the most difficult piece, um, you you sit down with the folks that might be the naysayers or might be the, the voice at the meeting that's opposed to everything so that you've had that chance to, to listen to them and hear their story. And that often um, changes the scene when you get to an official public hearing because they know you heard their point of view in a non-controversial place. And I've noticed that it, it, it changes the tone. Um, and, and so then you're not only hearing them when they're angry at a meeting or they're, or you have people taking sides, but instead you've kind of, you sat around across from the kitchen table and went to them about non-controversial issues. That's the point. Mm -hmm. How do you solve mm -hmm. these things or, or have a, a relationship with folks prior to the controversy getting there? Terrific. Thank you, Jane. A question came in from Melinda, Melissa from Georgia. She asks, how, how do you engage low-income and minority populations in the community planning and general local civic issues? Uh, these are often folks who, who won't come out to a planning meeting and um, might not be seem interested in what's going on. Uh, some thoughts about that, uh, Elise, and then I think, uh, Jane, you, you might have some thoughts about this as well. Elise? Um, yeah, so I think just coming from some of the experience of towns that are on the call, um, definitely building some relationship and trust with that specific population. So, for example, in Cortez, Colorado, they had a Ute Mountain Ute um, population as well as a Hispanic population. And for the latter, um, one particular person on the Heart and Soul team went and sat in 
like over 10 weekends, different various congregation church services, and built a relationship with the local pastors and priests there so that he could actually be the connected network inviting um, the Hispanic community to come to like a, a local block party that they were having specifically for the Hispanic population. And, um, you know, and I think in large part it came to the point where you want to actually reach out to that segment of your, of your demographic and population to ask them what will make it um, accessible um, for them to actually come or uh, approachable, really. Um, and so obviously having food, free food is good, um, but centrally located in a place that they're comfortable in. And so they went to their neighborhood, had a block party there. Um, and then they actually, the, the residents in that neighborhood said, you know, we would like for immigration to be there in the local police department, and we want, you know, other folks of authority, but please don't have them show up in their their uniforms. We want them in everyday clothes. And instead of the, you know, event being held in English and everybody having all the Spanish speakers having to get translators, have everything be in Spanish and those that speak in English have their translators so that, you know, we're sort of front and center. And so they didn't know that until they asked the community what felt right for them. Um, and again, it's not just one person that would know, so vetting that out and getting a sense with more people in your low-income or minority populations um, can really be helpful. And I have tons of other examples, but I'll stop there. Okay, terrific. Um, and uh, any other any other thoughts from folks, or, or we'll we'll continue. We've got plenty of questions and more coming in. So well, I'll, I'll answer again yeah, real quickly, uh, sure. Jane. Again. Um, in the heart and soul process, one of the first steps that you undertake is to develop a community network analysis. So you identify who are the groups in the community, where do you find them, who are the leaders that you might connect with. And so you start to dissect your community in many ways. So you have a very uh, robust way of connecting with folks because you might, you don't have to reach 10,000 people, you might reach a hundred people, and then they connect to their people. Um, in Maine, it, uh, you know, we certainly have low-income people in, in groups that are harder to connect with, um, and you know, we we found that we have to go to them, as Elise mentioned, and um, you know, that's the key. Find where you can talk to folks about um, what they care about. And, and don't expect them to come to a public hearing. That's crazy. Nobody, I mean, who wants to go to a public hearing? So um, find ways to connect to people in their place, and that, you know, that, that's the whole key. Terrific. Thank you, Jane. So, Rick, you might have just covered this in, your, um, in, in the first question, but from, Ellen from D.C. Is, is interested in how you overcome reflexive um, NIMBY, not in my backyard, uh, do you have anything to add, or is it pretty much the, the uh, a similar tactic for controversial projects? Yeah, I would say it's a similar tactic, and, and Golden definitely has not conquered uh, reflexive nimbyism by any means. We still get people coming to us for, for any of these projects who live next door, down the street, et cetera, and, you know, I, I don't want this here. It's, it's uh, you know, have it, you know, put it somewhere else. Uh, but but it really does help to have have these have these values and have these policy documents and, and zoning et cetera reflect the, the community values that that you know decision makers can can point to and say I understand that this is not something that you would prefer but the community as a whole has expressed the desire for this and and you can you can you can stand up to that a lot better when you when you have that uh, to stand on. 
Okay, great, Rick, thanks. Uh, Enrique, um, or Enrique from New Jersey has asked, how do you best reach out to community members who have planning fatigue? So this might be that smaller group that has been doing this for a while. Uh, Jane, do you have ways, creative ways, to, to get people excited again and into the next um, moving well, forward? You know, it's interesting. This kind of process is a disguised planning process in many ways because it's fun and you, people don't always realize that they're giving you what Elise called data. It's information about the community. So you might be using a community festival or a potluck dinner or an event that's already happening, but you use that to collect information about what people care most about. Um, you always need the, the planning type folks that um, you know, get engaged and work on the on the codes or the ordinances or the or the comprehensive plan. You need that piece, um, and people do come and go at different times. So that's you know, that, I think that's a given. But but the point of this process again is that it's it's different and it's a new way of or and a kind of a creative way of collecting information about your community. Someone still has to put it into the document. And if you're lucky enough, in my opinion, to have a professional planner to help you, a lot of my communities don't have planners. Um, so it's lay people that are doing that. And there is fatigue, but um, it's not all data analysis. It's, it's really, um, you know, talking about what people care about. And that, that's why we're in our communities. That's why we get engaged, because we do care about the community. And I think everybody has that common ground. Um, so Great. <laughs> Fantastic, Jane. Uh, this this next question, I think, um, is also about well, how do poor rural communities come up with additional money to conduct additional processes? Cost is a huge item in poor rural areas, and I, I imagine time. The, I, I think there's also a pushback is that this is, this kind of process takes too much time. Um, so it's time and money. Elise, can you begin to um, address? Those, those real issues about uh, a process that, that does take some time. Yeah, and I think um, definitely. And so some of the communities that we've worked in have been, um, they're, they're very, very poor. Um, and so coming up with the money for this took some, you know, pooled funding. So they looked at local community foundations um, and even some towns um, found their own funding from local residents and, and business owners. But I think as planners, oftentimes we have to sort of provide ourselves with the ammunition or the proof of why it's good to have um, great civic involvement or social capital in our communities um, because we focus a lot on like basic services or local economy and safety and, and, and you know, education, sometimes aesthetics, but we don't really get to focus on, you know, social offerings and openness and things like that. And one of the things that I would point you to, and it's on our website, but maybe we can give you a direct link, but the Knight Foundation did um, a three-year study of, of, I don't remember, it's like 26 communities, and they showed um, direct correlation with a community's sense of attachment and economic growth. So if you're looking to try to have, um, whether it's local funders or even your local town or city council or your economic development um, group, help provide funding for this, you got to show them that um, it will actually provide for, you know, more money into the community if you better engage your residents. And so this report from the Knight Foundation um, really shows that. And so 
I think some of these things that help you provide proof that engaging your community is actually um, financially um, a sound way of moving forward as well. It doesn't just cost money. It will actually yield return in a financial way as well. Mm, thank you. Jane, are there additional ways that you've convinced communities that it's worth the time and money? Um, not that I can think of right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty good. I, uh, there's actually an, another question I think both you and Rick uh, could relate to. Is, is how do you move officials from checking the boxes to discovering public interests? So really getting them to want to find out what the public is interested in. Rick, you want to give that a, a stab first? Sure. I, well, I, I think in, in, in Golden, we've, we've been lucky. I think a lot of, a lot of our elected officials have, uh, have been part of the, the, uh, the, the sort of values-driven process from early on and, and, and have this kind of Im embedded in the, in the way they do business. We, we, we talk a lot about things here in Golden. Um, engagement is, is not really a problem here, and, uh, and, and I think the, the city councilors really love to, to delve into what people are thinking, and, and, and so we have, we have lots of meetings, and we, we sometimes have very long meetings, but I think it's, it's a way to, you know, you, you really get uh, a sense of what the public is interested in and, and can act accordingly. And, and you know, I, I don't know... I suppose we have challenges in, in, in at some times, but I think most of the time, you know, people are very engaged here. We're, we're lucky that way. Okay. Yeah, I guess I would add to that that, you know, instead of checking the boxes, I would ask the question, is the old way of doing business working? And if you're only getting folks that are coming out in anger, it's not working. Something is being missed. And how do we govern and guide our communities by what matters most to people. So we're not proposing things that cost a lot of money and people don't work, don't want, and they make things worse in some cases. And it's really it's really listening to our community members and making policy, making decisions based on what they care about and what matters most to them. Can I just add to this as Elise? I know um, we're trying to get as many questions as we can, but a real tangible as well. I'm always like, where's the proof? Um, we have some heart and soul minutes, so hopefully we can provide some links to folks that are um, people that have, are, are city council members or were or their city managers or their mayors um, that have done heart and soul and can really speak to the um, effect of this. And so sometimes it takes, you know, somebody from council talking to somebody else from council or a select board or something um, versus somebody in a planning role. So if you need that kind of, um, those heart and soul minutes of recordings of folks that have been through it that can give a little bit more testament, we have that as well. And, and Elisa, right at the bottom of the document, there are links to a couple of those minutes. So right. people can check those out uh, right after the call. Uh, Steve from Vermont, this is, this is a more recent question that just came in. He's very curious about how the Heart and Soul program pedagogy or platform compares and contrasts to traditional community engagement, planning, and development processes. So there certainly are a lot of different processes out there. Um, Elise, how, how do you kind of help people uh, distinguish or, or contrast what the Community Heart and Soul program brings? Yeah, and I guess I'll try to be quick and then give time for um, Jane and Rick if you both, I'm sure, have personal experience with this too. But 
um, you know, whether you're using asset-based community development or the discovery process or appreciative inquiry. I mean, there's so many different sort of processes out there, and I will just first say that we were aware of those kinds of processes and built in the best of them into this model. And so, you know, the trajectory of this model takes you from building your team to gathering input from a broader cross-section of your community than has ever, I could almost say definitively, has ever been done before, using that to actually identify what kinds of um, ideas and actions should happen, and then more people sort of owning and then taking action together collectively as partners. And so because, you know, other typical pro processes will ask for sort of visioning and, you know, what do you want done about X, um, you know, what do we want done about our downtown? Well, it's already front-loading that downtown is what's important. If you let the community articulate what's important to them, you don't have to force-feed it. It naturally is what they believe to be sort of what they want to work on. And so then as you develop projects and proposals around that, they'll continue to feel heard and, and be part of the process. And so the, the biggest thing that, that I would say is compares to traditional community engagement is that it's community engagement that is intended not just for gathering information, but community engagement for the purposes of developing relationships in the community. So that it's not just like a survey that you send out and you get info and it's sort of the, the one-off or indirect way of connecting with people, but you're not, you're actually going to them, but you're also having them hear from each other. So you're building more of a sense of community. Um, and, you know, as I say, like in Golden, from my experience there, People on the north side of the town didn't always talk or listen or cross paths with people from the south side of the town. So the fact that this process could come in and gather stories and be intentional about who was listening to those was really important and created advocates um, for people on both sides of the town. So um, any other, I guess there's probably more things to distinguish, but Jane or Rick, if you want to add. Yeah, I, I would say, there, and I've been doing planning for many, many years, as many on the call have have. There are three big distinctions between heart and soul and traditional planning. The first is um, using that community network analysis to identify who is in your community. And I won't go into detail, but if you look at the field guide, you'll see how to do that. The second is using storytelling. Um, and as Elise says, it is a community building um, process to incorporate people to listen to the stories and then to have the community listen to the stories and have the storytellers. And, and I don't mean tell a story about, you know, uh, three, the three bears or something. It's really about your story, your personal story. And then the third piece is it's action-oriented. What can we do in the short, mid, and long term that meets what these people in our community care most about? And so they can see results immediately of, of because of things that they cared about. And it doesn't mean that government has to take those actions. In Gardner, as I, I think I pointed out, it isn't always the government that needs to do everything. That costs taxpayers money. But who else in the community can do things that people care most about? In Gardner, they, they you know, needed picnic tables, and the Rotary Club built them. So that wasn't a government action, um, and there are many, many, many other examples of of taking action um, so people see results. Mm. And and I think that that whole bridging that you kind of refer to, it doesn't right. have to just be the government. It can be other organizations that right. begin to talk to one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
we we had uh, one um, one comment come in saying, "I'm convinced. How do we move forward with this heart and soul process?" And uh, there is a link to the field guide, which is a step by step, very um, very easy to follow guide uh, right in the announcement section of the Google Doc. So you can click on that and you can download a free guide to find out what heart and soul is all about. So that's how you get there. Uh, there's, a, there's another question about students. Uh, what's the best way for students to learn the heart and soul method and become involved with groups using the method? Now, I imagine that this could mean students, a, a lot of uh, heart and soul towns uh, have high school students involved. Uh, there, this also could be referring to uh, planning students in college. I'm not sure, but um, at least you want to get a stab to either either one of those aspects of students becoming learning the heart and soul method and becoming involved with groups using it. Sure, and I think to sort of reiterate again, Jane um, keeps mentioning the community network analysis, and I will say um, one missing voice that we know that exists in every single community are our youth. And so you don't even need to necessarily do the network analysis to know that. We know that that's one piece of diversity that we all have in common. We've all been youth before. Um, and so involving youth in a very meaningful way that's not tokenizing but giving them, you know, voting rights and being able to participate in the process is really important. And so um, everything that's in the field guide, we do recommend that, the, that youth are on your committee, um, that they're part of the process. So, for example, in the North Fork Valley, they had youth that were between ages 8 and 12 years old. They trained them how to be youth reporters, and they went out and actually gathered stories from people in the community of particular industries. They had divides there around industry sectors. And so the youth gathered stories there, and then there was a big culminating um, community series of community conversations and listening to those those videos and stories that the youth had, had collected. Um, I do know that then later other communities have, you know, surveyed the youth and asking them how else they'd like to be involved in the community. Um, Cortez, Colorado now has, um, after surveying their, all of their high school, um, like uh, 50 or 60 uh, youth said that they wanted to be on boards and committees, so they started doing some training um, between youth and um, sort of committee, like partnership between youth and adults. Um, but I think where this question might be going to is how can we get more students, um, like in the academic world, learning about heart and soul. And I will say that we, we're working on that. Um, we did actually just demo a class for our purposes of learning how this might go at the University of Utah um, with their architecture and planning school. And we're in conversation with a couple of other universities and trying to figure out how heart and soul might actually become more part of the methodology for planners before they even leave school or even as they're practicing as they're going to school um, in planning. So, right. I'll just add to that about um, one way we incorporated youth in Damascata um, was the part of the committee went into the high school and worked with a group after school that we kind of asked teachers to help us establish and the kids were interested in and we brought snacks. And they conducted a survey of 700 students from that area high school and asked them what they want in town. And one of the things they came up with was that they wanted a place to meet in town after school where they could have, you know, gather together, do their homework, get online, and have snacks. And before they had to go home for the evening or go to a sports event or, or practice. 
Um, and as a result, one of the local restaurants said, I have a back room that nobody uses between 2 and 4 p.m., and you can come down and have your backpacks and play games and just hang out. And they created a youth uh, menu with youth prices of uh, snack food, and um, it was a great you know, opportunity to listen to what the kids really wanted and, um, and incorporate that into the community. So it, was, it, it worked. Making it happen. Thank you, yeah. Jane. Uh, there have been a couple of questions about regional areas. Uh, Jocelyn from Connecticut has asked, have you seen this work on a regional 21 municipality scale uh, for regional planning process? And then also Eric from New York, um, kind of a longer question, but I think getting at the same thing, states have various mechanisms and structures to incorporate planning into the decision-making process. For instance, some plan on a regional level, um, like a county, while others plan at the local level, such as in New York. Uh, good development and plans don't simply stop at an arbitrary boundary, such as a municipal line. How does Heart and Soul deal with the intricacies of the various mechanisms for adopting and implementing plans so it sounds like, and then even the, the next question is, what is the size, city or town, does this work best in? So can we talk a little bit about how this would work on a regional basis or on a smaller basis? Uh, Elise, do you want to start with that? Um, I can. And then I think uh, the example that Golden has is kind of a, a unique way of thinking about that if you expanded it out. But um, so, for example, in um, the North Fork Valley project, that ended up being three communities working together to identify really a, um, a vision for themselves, in, in particular because each of those three towns were very small and the county um, was often making decisions around them that didn't take into consideration their, their values and their heart and soul. And so um, working together um, helped create a sort of stronger voice for them as a collective, but it didn't mean that what they came up with didn't allow each of those towns to have their own unique um, uh, feel. And, you know, so even though they had unified sense of what their heart and soul was, how that manifested looked differently in each of the towns. I will say when we were done, at first the county didn't have a lot of um, interest, not in a negative way, but they just didn't really know what it was about. And then when the project was coming to a close, enough valuable information and knowing what the heart and soul of those towns were, the county wanted to know, how do we do that? Because we want to actually do that on a countywide level. And, of course, they'd have to do that on sort of their own level and not borrow from those, um, the heart and soul from that particular region. But I think the golden example is kind of interesting, too, in that, you know, they, they took heart and soul across the whole city, and then they applied it in neighborhoods. And so... So the question about what town does it, you know, what size city or town does it work best in, for myself, being a planner from big cities of over 400,000 people to towns that were less than 8,000, I think heart and soul can apply everywhere. I think in the big cities you can do it broadly or you can do it neighborhood by neighborhood. Um, but I do know that it's better to do it as a whole sort of community, and whether that's a neighborhood or the whole city, versus project-specific. And so I don't know if the, anybody on the call, that will totally resonate, but it's better to do it on sort of um, a bigger sort of process so that you get what is the heart and soul, what are we all collectively working toward, and that's harder to do when you're taking like a five-acre development and trying to just vision just that with the community because you want that five-acre development to already have some of the guidance that the whole community um, loves and cherishes about a place. So I'm not sure if there's Any, more. Any others want to add? 
Yeah, yeah Rick or Jane I guess I, I, Go ahead, Rick. Sure. I, I would just say that it really helped us to have the broader community conversation first and have all of those values kind of, you know, as they, as they occurred all throughout the community and then focus on those specific right. neighborhood areas to, to and see how those values matched up. And most cases, they, they were just kind of a one-to-one. I mean, you know, there were specific takes on situations in certain neighborhoods that, that kind of helped with the planning process there. But the values really remain the same, and it's really just putting it into that smaller context and figuring out what to do with, with that area. Yeah, I, I'll give you an example of that. You know, um, Dan Mascotta said we value accessibility, and the devil's in the details because as a community, you value being able to get around town, to be able to ride a bike, to be able to get in and get out of town, and also accessibility to your community leaders. But does accessibility mean that every single new neighborhood has to have a sidewalk? Well, no, it doesn't. And so at that point, you scale down that accessibility question to, to what is it, uh, you know, appropriate for this development, this neighborhood. And in, you know, in a rural neighborhood where everybody walks in the middle of the road, you don't need a sidewalk. It doesn't make sense. So you really have to decide what is accessible, um, you know, based on the situation. So um, in general, the whole community would agree, yes, we want to be an accessible community, but on the other hand, do we need a sidewalk everywhere? No, of course not. So, um, but it's much better, as Rick said, to start on the more global level and then come down to the specifics. Mm -hmm. Great. I um, we are getting right on um, up up to the end of the hour, and I want um, our guests to all kind of give us a, a closing statement. So I'm just going to quickly review the questions that we have left and maybe answer them. One was um, from New Mexico, uh, just saying the um, uh, effica efficacy of SOAR, which is. Um, uh, Strengths, opportunities, I, I believe aspirations and results, and community capital as compared to SWAT, which is strengths, opportunities, um, uh, weakness, and threats. And I would just say heart and soul is a more asset-based method based on a positive approach. SWAT is used uh, for some communications, and in phase three, we look at trends um, that might be um, issues. So. We have wonderful people online. If you want to add your answers to that question, or there's a there's someone um, that came in from Ohio who is interested in developing countries and their experience of urban planning and how that's applied to other countries. Uh, that's not so much what Orton is doing right now, but some of you might have a, a good answer or a good resource for that person. So um, uh, please come in there. And one last question that just came in, and this might be kind of the devil's in the details again. Um, he says, has the deferred infrastructure maintenance shortfall, which I believe is the, is the national shortfall, versus density and the need to raise property taxes come to the surface? So it's almost as if these are, these are very specific issues, and how does heart and soul um, and planners begin to even um, look at some of these much more specific ideas and move forward? Uh, so if people have ideas about that, let us know. In the meantime, I'm going to um, have to begin wrapping up and ask our guests um, if they have like one key element about using heart and soul and or getting started with community heart and soul that you would offer as a final word. Uh, can we start with Rick? Sure, sure. Um, I, I guess I guess I would say that 
Heart and Soul definitely takes a lot more time. It's it's a it's a time-consuming planning process, and and so you know I, I think some are scared off by that to to, to the degree it it uh, takes up uh, very limited staff time and community time and and so forth. But I think if you take the time to do it, it actually it actually gives you you know better results in the end. You know you spend that upfront time going through the community and and, and really discovering what they what they feel is important. It gives you guidance throughout the rest of your your processes, and can, and can give you a lot more confidence in in, in dealing with uh, with some controversial issues and, and and making sure everyone gets heard. And so I, I guess I would say it's it's a lot more time, but in the end, it's it's worth it, and and it really pays off in in a happier uh, happier community. Great, Rick. Thank you so much. And James, go ahead. We're gonna we're probably gonna go a minute or two longer, but hang in there because these are important pieces of information. Go ahead, James. I guess uh, my two pieces of advice would be to uh, take a look at the field guide um, because I think it is a convincing document with lots of great tools recommended and suggested in it. And then second, um, be bold and be brave. You know, I think as community leaders, people are often, they don't want to hear bad news or they don't want to hear people's stories. But but think of those as, um, you know, the heart of your community, and you really do need to listen to folks. So be brave and go out and listen to folks, um, and you'll be surprised at what you hear because people love their community, and and that's where our common ground is. Great. Thank you. And, and Elise, a final word. Yeah, um, I guess I'll say a couple things. If you have more questions, you can certainly reach out to us, and this might be part of your um, piece, Fran, so I hope I'm not stealing. But okay. help desk, helpdesk at Orton.org. Um, I know as a planner, if I were in your shoes right now, I'd have a lot of questions. I'd want to know more info. We have a lot of resources that we didn't get to on the phone or that are even on the Google Doc. Um, feel free to reach out to us. Um, and I would, I guess, end with, you know, with a town that knows itself, you'll be able to attract the kind of developers and development that your town wants and needs so that you're not sort of subject to the changes that are happening at a national level and maybe even locally um, that you can, you know, change doesn't have to happen to you. Um, it can happen because of what your community um, articulates and what it says it wants to be. So, okay. Thank you so much, Elise, from the Denver office for being on the call. Thank you. And thank you, Rick um, Murphy, for being uh, from way down in, in Golden, from a little bit further down in Golden, Colorado. Thank you. And Jane LaFleur from Maine, thank you for sharing your wisdom today. Thank you. You're welcome. So that's our call for today. Caitlin has put a link to a very brief survey at the top of the Google Doc in the announcement section, I believe, or maybe at the bottom of the doc. Uh, we hope you take that survey. It will also be sent out to you when we send you a copy of this program. Uh, let us know about your experiences on the call. It will help us uh, make them more useful to you next time. A podcast of this call and a Google Doc, um, the Google Doc call notes will be emailed to all registrants and posted online. We hope you continue to look it over and add to it um, right now as you have the time. We hope you join us for our next Orton Family Foundation event, Thursday, November 19th, when we'll present a webinar on Phase 3 of Community Heart and Soul. It focuses on developing options and making decisions 
based on what matters most to your town. Registration will be available shortly, and we'll probably send it along a link uh, when we send out uh, the copy of this Google Doc. And Orton has just released and revised, uh, as we've said, the uh, recent edition of the Heart and Soul Field Guide. You can download it free. Uh, there's also a link at the top of your Google Doc. Thank you all for participating. We hope you walk away with some rich ideas to improve planning in your town. For all of us at the Orton Family Foundation, I'm Fran Stoddard. We hope to see you next time, and thanks so much for participating.